kind of succinctly, and then um, do a little bit about loving kindness to end on a nice place before lunch. Okay? Okay, great. So, as the Buddha says here, outstanding behavior, blameless action, open hands to all, and selfless giving, this is a blessing supreme. You know, so in other words, we want to be able to be virtuous toward each other. You know, as you know, in Buddhism, it's considered that there are three pillars of practice in Pali, sila, samadhi, and panya, or translated in a nutshell, virtue, concentration or mindfulness, and wisdom. Right? Three great pillars, which you see in many other contemplative traditions around the world. So there's an emphasis here on virtue, on regulating ourselves, treating other people appropriately, and applying virtue, non-harming at bottom, non-harming toward ourselves, right? Well, to do that, we have, with other people especially, we have to have a sense of what's actually going on inside them, which takes us to empathy. I don't know about you, but in my own journey through the New Age human potential and sometimes Buddhist world, um, I've been on the receiving end of what I would think of as compassion or kindness that couldn't be bothered to be empathic. You know, a kind of generic, oh, I wish you didn't suffer, that's not empathic at all. And, you know, I've probably done that myself. Okay, I'm guilty too. Center, center, over here too. Uh, But generally speaking, if we're going to sustain compassion or kindness for others, we need to have real empathy, which fundamentally means that we have some sense over here of what it's like for them over there. We actually let it land over here. We let ourselves be somewhat moved. We resonate with them. As, as he said all the way in the back, we feel that energy, if, even if belly to belly or skin to skin from other people. So in the brain, there are three different circuits that do empathy, that do this kind of inner simulation of what it's like for the other person. In a nutshell, uh, one set of systems in the brain simulate the actions of others. Those are the so-called mirror neurons, or mirror-like networks. So if you're willing to do a little silly thing with me right now, if you could, with your body, reach for an imaginary cup. With your arm, reach for that cup, great, good. Set it down, good job, great, okay, good. Now watch me reach for the cup. Okay? In your brain, when you reach for the cup, a bunch of neurons activated in sensory motor systems, right? When you saw me reach for the cup, a fraction of those same neurons also activated when you saw me do it. That's the mirroring idea, okay? Which blew the minds of various experimenters when they first discovered it, um, and um, has been a lot of area of a lot of investigation lately. It's a very efficient way for animals who can do this as well, uh, whether it's primates or, or other less advanced animals like you know, gophers in the wild, to be able to track, get a sense of the intentions of prey or predators or other members of their species to have this kind of internal activation over here of what would be happening inside me if I were doing what you're doing over there is a very efficient way to give me some understanding into what you're doing over there, okay? That's empathy for action, pardon me. Then there's empathy for emotion. That's done a lot through the insula, 
the same part of the brain I referred to earlier that grows in meditators' brains who repeatedly tune into themselves. We use the same system that we used for interoception, tuning into our own body, our own gut feelings, to tune into the gut feelings of other people. And then the third major system in the brain that does empathy are the so-called theory of mind systems in the prefrontal cortex that tune into the thoughts broadly defined the intentions, the personality dynamics, the recent history, what we know about their childhood and how that affected them, their Myers-Briggs profile, their neogram point, their horoscope sign, you know, whatever, you know, their totem animal. I don't know, just like we think that about them, we know that about them, okay, we take that into account. All three systems work together. Um, empathy is a dynamic process where we get a sense inside and then maybe we think about it and check it out, and then we tune back inside. All three are important. I like to make a point in passing, which is that the simulation of actions of other, in, other, in other people is certainly, is certainly an important aspect of empathy, but it's not the be-all and end-all of empathy. Mirror neurons, mirror-like networks have gotten a lot of play, but that's actually probably a tiny fraction of the neural hardware that's involved in doing empathy. And personally, as a therapist, Married 31 years, you know, through thick and thin, some thin, uh, parent, whatever. Uh, if I had to pick two out of three of these capacities, I'd pick being able to th simulate thoughts and feelings, and I'd be willing to give up the simulation of the actions of other people, just thinking about it in terms of a priority. So how do we cultivate empathy? How do we strengthen these systems in practical ways? So I'm going to just kind of talk briefly about this. Good. We already covered this. Great. Good. Sort of. All right. Whoop. Skills. I just want to name a few. They're probably pretty obvious to people. I think of this as a pre-flight checklist. All right. A little bit, you know, basically, first of all, am I paying attention? It's really interesting to think about giving attention. Or I had a guru for a while. One of the titles of his books was The Bodily Sacrifice of Attention. It's a pretty powerful way of phrasing that, the bodily sacrifice of attention. We Sacrifice being a sacred act in its original meaning of the word, sacrifice. You know, sacred act where we give attention. And it shows up in very down-to-earth ways with our partners at a dinner table. You know, there I am, you know, my wife's talking and my eyes start migrating to the remote control for the television set, you know. Or I start talking to her and her eyes start migrating to the Macy's ad, you know, or something like that. We can feel it. Flip the other way, you know, uh, we, we can feel it when they don't give us our full attention. We can also feel it when they give us their full attention, the gift of attention, even if only for a minute or two or three straight. So paying attention. Uh, another is we have to be open ourselves. If we're all tight and constricted, maybe because we're totally upset or we're numb from the neck down, it's really hard to receive the other person. Okay? Another key uh, are the micro-expressions. Uh, Paul Ekman's work, UCSF, the TV show Lie to Me, uh, especially the first season, really interesting. If you want a crash course in micro-expressions, uh, you know, watch the TV show Lie to Me, you know, Tim Roth is the main actor. Basically, we have all these micro-movements around the eyes. We have the most expressive eyes of any animal, and also right around the edges of the mouth. The body altogether, but it, you know, that really helps us be empathic to look closely um, and continually at those micro-expressions that are going by, often in a second or less. Okay? Sensing beneath the surface, 
What's the hurt underneath the anger? What's the vulnerability underneath the defensiveness, right? What's younger underneath this adult surface? Um, stepping back from our own aversion, right? We may still not like what we're hearing. We may still be bothered that X, Y, or Z is true for the other person. But if we're at war with it in our mind, we can't be empathic about it. That again is interestingly where a deep sense of inner strength can help us reserve our rights. You know, we're not giving, empathy is not agreement. Empathy is not approval. Uh, one of a powerful experience for me personally was uh, Saddam Hussein, uh, the first, uh, uh, the second Iraq war. Um, you know, when he was caught, at that point, his sons had been killed. And even though, in my view, he was a despotic dictator who gassed his own people and so forth, I could feel for him as a father what it must be, you know, some sense that he lost his own children, you know, and that at some level, I don't know, there might be some corner of his mind that knew he had something to do with that fact. And, you know, so we can have empathy for people that we disapprove of or have moral judgments about, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, but it's hard to do that if we're at war with them in our mind or repelled by them. Disgust is a very primal emotion. Okay? Investigating, and then if we want, expressing empathy. Often we're empathic without expressing it. Right? But we can also express it. There are different ways to do it. You can see down there at the very bottom. Um, and I think that it's important to be careful about how we do empathy. Uh, you know, in my own childhood, uh, my mom, who loved me dearly, no longer alive, I thought of her sometimes as the Trojan horse, in that she would come bearing gifts. Uh, but as soon as I opened my gates, she would then express her love by helping me improve myself, <laughs> which kind of became tiresome, you know, by the time I was three, probably. I don't know, certainly by the time I was 13. So be careful about this idea where we, we do the empathy thing, we kind of get them to, we soften them up with our empathy, and then we come in with the judgment, the advice, the correction, the criticism, the unwanted help, and so forth. So that's something to be aware about, too. Okay? So then the last thing here, and then I'll see if you have a comment, then we'll do a little thing on compassion and have lunch, because I have compassion for you, uh, and I, myself too. But anyway, Longfellow, if we could read the secret history of our enemies through empathy, we should find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm any hostility. It doesn't mean waive our rights. It doesn't mean not seek justice, right? But we don't need to do it with hostility, with going to war. You know, I had, we're going to talk more about this, um, a teacher of mine, Gil Fronstel, said once, he said, you know, you may need to put people out of your monastery, like in Asia or who knows here, because they're growing marijuana in the forest above the monastery, not cool, all right? You may need to put them out of your monastery, or you may need to put someone out of your company because they're not coming to work on time, or you may need to put somebody out of your bed because they're not faithful to you, right? but we don't need to put them out of our heart. That's a high standard, right? But that's really ultimately, I think, what we're called to. So we, we can uh, be strong, but we don't need to put the person out of our heart. We don't need to tip into hostility. Okay, okay. Any comments or questions so far? How about right there, so Lily? 
getting your exercise, gentlemen there. Keep that hand up.